University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35. wonder if you might sing a song with me this morning. It's a really simple song most of us should know, so let's just make sure <clears throat> I want to get on the right vocal uh, pitch here. You know this song, Old MacDonald, right? All right, ready? Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on his farm he had a dragon, Wait, what did y'all just sing? What? Okay, sorry. I, I didn't make the decision if we're doing like the fantasy version or like the real life version or what we're doing. So let's, let's try that again. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on his farm he had a cow, E-I-E-I-O. Some of y'all said dragon, didn't you? Yeah. I said let's switch it back to reality, okay? Not the, the fantasy world. Now, why are we singing O McDonald? Our text for this morning has a very agrarian feel to it, so I want to get us in the right mood. So where are we in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, we've recently witnessed Jesus heal a man of leprosy, a man who was a religious and social outcast. He then heals a sick centurion servant, a political enemy of the people and an outsider. He then encounters three would-be followers who choose not to follow him because they don't want to pay the price of comfort and availability and authenticity. Then the Gospels get a little interesting because it says Jesus and the disciples get into a boat. They venture to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, except a storm comes in the middle. There's this hilarious story where the disciples think they're going to die. Jesus gets up, speaks, calming into the storm. They get to the other side. It says that there Jesus casts a demon out of a man, commissions the man to go be his witness in the town. Then the disciples and Jesus get back in the boat and head back to the other side. So what the Gospels are trying to tell us is Jesus was willing to risk the life of the disciples and maybe their clean underwear for the sake of one man. One man. What does that tell us about the love of God? And so in our text this morning, it's a very fascinating read. It begins this way in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out the workers into the harvest field. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We're going to do this in a couple parts. And please don't underestimate what I'm about to say. This very passage is the reason that I took Greek for six years. There's a specific word used here in the text. It is the Greek word spelognon. And its literal translation means he was moved from his inmost bowels. That sounds really delicious, doesn't it? 
It says, Jesus looked out of the crowd and had compassion, spalagnon. He had, he had this feeling that came from his inmost bowels. What Matthew is trying to convey is that Jesus didn't look at these people in the circumstances and think, oh, those poor, poor people. Well, let's move on to more important things. Matthew is trying to convey to us that down at the core of God's existence is a compassion for people that goes beyond description. This is the word used by Paul to the church in Philippi when he beseeches them to put on the mind of Christ and to serve like Jesus. It's used by John and John, 1 John 1, when he says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees a brother and sister in need and close his heart to him, how can the love of God abide in him? It's the word used by Jesus to describe what the father felt in the prodigal son's story when he saw his son coming back home. Again and again, the Gospels tell us that Jesus had a compassion that came from his bowels. My least favorite subject in school uh, was math. Uh, my philosophy was, why work on math problems? That's selfish. Let me leave that to the people that really enjoy math. Uh, but I'll, I'll go far enough in math that I, I stick to the simple stuff. So let's work out these problems together, okay? Aaron, Aaron's here to help us. Aaron Biggers, lifelong math teacher in school. Two plus two equals one minus three is negative. Oh, there, we got some sharp people in here, uh-huh. Five times five is? Okay. I tend to quit uh, math when you start to insert the letters in there because that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. See, Christianity has a really long tradition of making this Jesus thing really complicated. But I feel what Jesus is doing for us in this text is showing us how simple of a math problem this really is. God is love. Let's take that a little closer. God loves the world. Let's take that into an anthropological level. God really loves humanity. Let's take this down to a, a, a local level. God loves this community. And let's take this down to a personal level. God loves you. You see, Jesus came to show us God's compassion in actions and words and an invitation. And we can't complicate this because it's so simple and it's so pure that down to the core of who God is, is love. John defines God as love in John chapter one. You see, what's fascinating is that scripture is filled with the, the fascination and mystery of who God possibly can be, except John goes out on a limb and just says simply, God is love. And we see so vividly within this text the heart of Jesus, which is the heart of God. Here is the Son of God touching and seeing and smelling and experiencing the ailments and brokenness and lostness of humanity through, through sickness and poverty and possessions and corruptions. And he's looking at these things and through the core of his existence is a response of love. You see, in these four verses, we see the summation of the last five chapters of scriptures in which Jesus encounters person after person in need of healing and redemption and justice and transformation. They need God's love. 
So let's zero in to just some specific examples from John or through Matthew chapter 9 alone. You see, this is the heart-wrenching account that we see within this text. We, we learn that there is a father who throws himself at the feet of Jesus because his 12-year-old girl is dying. A few years back, we experienced a health scare with Aubriana in a matter of a two-week span. We weren't sure if she had cancer or an autoimmune disease or something else. We didn't know what the treatment would be and if it was going to work. I can't even imagine as a father knowing that your daughter is dying and you can do nothing, and so you throw yourself at the feet of this man who you heard does healing. But then the story gets really complicated because it says that as Jesus is on the way to go heal this girl, a a woman who has been suffering for 12 years of uncontrollable bleeding encounters Jesus. She touches Jesus. She is healed from the faith she has that believing he can transform her life. And while Jesus is stopping to affirm this woman, news reaches the father that the girl is dead. Except that Jesus tells him to have faith. Because he goes and he resurrects the girl. And in chapter 9 alone of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. He blesses the friends of a loved one who is brought their friend before Jesus. He, he loved the Pharisees enough to tell them that their religiosity is blinding them from God's true calling. He called a despicable tax collector to come and follow him. He heals a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. He resurrects a 12-year-old girl to life. He restores the hope of her parents. He gives sight to two blind men. He gives voice back to a man who had been crippled by a demon. He loves the Pharisees enough to rebuke them by showing them that God God is more interested in transforming humanity than about religious rules. This is in just one chapter of the Gospel of Matthew alone. Do you believe that God loves you? You see, we sing it in songs every single week. We hear it in sermons. We read it in books. We we quote it on social media. We might even decorate our walls with it. We plaster it in other places. But do we really believe down to the core of our existence that God truly loves us? As Rachel Hudd Evans wrote, the great struggle of the Christian life is to take God's name for us, to believe that we are beloved, and to believe that that is enough. For each person in here, there is a varying degree of reasons of why we might have a hard time accepting that God truly loves us. For some in this space, it's hard to accept that God loves us due to the setbacks and disappointments of life, while others because of sickness or death of those we love. For many in this space, it's hard to accept that God loves us because of the lack of love we've experienced through family or through friendships or maybe even from the church. And while for others it's hard to accept God's love because of the religious imagery painted for us, presenting God as this wrathful and judgmental being that's ready to to blow us up out of his anger. You see, self-rejection and anger and depression and inflated egos and inflated inadequacy, failures, past and present mistakes, past and present rejection, abandonment, on and on, it can be so easy to find legitimate reasons of not believing that God loves us. These are the people in Matthew chapter 9. They are sick, they are hurting, they are blind, they are mute, they are dying, they are suffering, they are self-righteous, they are successful, they are rich and poor, they are outcasts, they are marginalized people for every reason to believe that God doesn't care of them. And then Jesus shows up. 
You see, Jesus desires to show up in our life with with compassion that comes from the very essence of God's existence. Does that mean that God is going to fix all of our problems, resurrect us from the dead, heal all of our sickness, tamper down judgment, cure our blindness, and make us walk again? Yes. And maybe in these exact same ways, and maybe in ways we don't expect. Maybe we are not literally blind, but we are blinded by stress and depression and anger and resentment and hurt and despair and arrogance and disillusion and cultural norms. Might Jesus heal us of our blindness to see a new way of thinking and living? Maybe we're not literally bleeding for 12 years, but we are hemorrhaging money and relationships and self-worth and hope in the world and our neighbors. Might Jesus stop the bleeding by giving us perspective and direction and renewal? Maybe we do not have a 12-year-old girl dying, but we feel as if the world we have created for ourselves, our careers, our family, our financial well-being, our relationships, our hopes, and our dreams are dying, and we just need Jesus to act. Might Jesus act, but not in the way that we can imagine or fathom. Might Jesus bring healing and transformation to the center of our world by radically changing us with love? You see, the people in Matthew chapter 9 found an inkling of faith to believe that Jesus loved them and desired to bring transformation in their lives. Will you? Later in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, there's some interesting words in this powerful statement of Jesus. He's keep using this word yoke. Uh, for most of us, when we think of yoke, we're like, I want an all-white egg omelet. I don't want the yellow stuff. The yellow stuff is the good stuff. But what Jesus is talking here of, of the yoke, he's, he's referring to what was put on the back of an oxen to pull a cart or a till. The farmer would strap the ropes onto a, a yoke through a loop and buckle them and cinch them this yoke over this oxen in order to drag a till. And to the ox, this till would have been hard. It would have been dense and arid climate of the first century Palestine. It was difficult work. Acre after acre, row after row that the ox would have been dragging this till the weight of the yoke strapped over its shoulders and Jesus is saying that I want to take a heavy yoke of your life of your work of your relationships of the injustices of this world of money of family of marriage of death of sickness of setback and heartbreak and I want to replace it with something easy and light but did you notice that that Jesus did not say that He'll snap his finger or wave his wand to just pray and make all this happen. Like a Middle Eastern holy Santa Claus. Instead, Jesus said in verse 28 and 29, Come to me and learn from me, and I will show you the way to rest and peace, to light burden, to gentleness. See, Jesus is inviting us to step out in faith to follow him into this new way into this new way of an easy yoke and a light burden, into a new way of thinking and living. 
You see, God loves you. God loves you enough to show you a, a new way. But the text isn't done. It says back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What is the harvest? Remember, Jesus is ministering to an agrarian-driven society in an agrarian economy of Palestine. Harvest was the ever-present reality. See, farmers would have been in a perpetual state of seeding and watering and fertilizing. Lest we not forget that Palestine is not exactly the easiest terrain to farm with its rocks and dust. And after all the seeding, after all the watering, after all the fertilizing, the harvest comes. The time to reap your work. And when the harvest came, the hard work began. Imagine a field full of crops ready to be picked. Your livelihood would depend on you getting every single crop properly at the right time. And when the field was ripe, you'd bring in harvesters, extra hands to reap the whole field at one time. Everything was dependent on you taking full advantage of what you produced. And if you didn't, the crop would rot and your livelihood would suffer. Jesus is comparing the vast, love-depleted world to the harvest, ripe and ready to experience God's transforming love. But, and it is a big old but, there is a problem. There are far too few workers. You see, the gospel makes it plain who the harvest was in Jesus' day. We just zeroed in to one specific chapter in which we see the vast diversity of harvest that Jesus is showing. But it begs the question, what is the harvest today? We could be vague and say, well, it's the world. And we would all get a golden star on our way out of worship today for giving the easy answer. But we live in a world full of people in need, physically and relationally and economically and socially and mentally and spiritually. Did you know that close to three billion people in the world, that's with a B, live on less than $2 a day? The average American daily spends $7 on entertainment, not a necessity. Every 20 seconds, a child dies of water-related diseases. For some of us that went recently to Ecuador, we saw firsthand the necessity of, of building these water filtration systems to provide uh, the prevention of waterborne pathogens. One-third of the world is well-fed, one-third of the world is overfed, and one-third of the world is starving. While we enjoy our freedom here in the States, there are places in the world where up to 50% of those who are in prison have been arrested and detained without charge or trial for five years. Imagine being arrested for no reason and thrown into prison, unable to see your family and friends for year after year. There's an estimate of 20 million people currently held in bonded state slavery. That statistic should blow our mind because there's more people in bonded slavery today than there ever was in the transatlantic slave trade. Meaning there are more people in slavery today than there ever has been before. And did you know that human trafficking is the third largest world enterprise? And 50% of those trafficked are children. And did you know that sex trafficking even takes place here in America? 
Last year, 3.3 million cases of child abuse and neglected. Homelessness is going away every night between 700,000 and 2 million people are in homelessness. It puts a new spin on Jesus' words in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to recover sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and set the captive free. But that's just a snapshot of the physical and economic needs around us. What about the relational and social and mental and spiritual needs around us? We live in a world full of people that are struggling in families and relationships and marriages at work and with self-worth. Every day we encounter people who are believing that building their little kingdoms of wealth and bigger homes and nicer cars and more stuff is gonna give them satisfaction and safety and security. Just this morning on our drive here, we passed people who are seeking fulfillment and belonging in anything and everything. And on our way home today, we will encounter people who may not realize that they are trying to fill a void in their life with all sorts of people and substance and life choices and and building their life around false hopes. These people are our neighbors and coworkers, strangers at the supermarket, waiters, baristas, college students, professors, people across town that we don't know their faces, government officials, and maybe even people in our families. You see, the harvest is the world, full of God's creation, no matter their race or their gender or their sexuality or their social status or their political affiliation or their stations in life or their level of religiosity or worth to us, Jesus is looking out from where we stand and saying, the harvest is plentiful. Imagine you are a parent um, sitting with your child in the doctor's office, and your child for weeks and weeks has been complaining about headaches that just never seem to go away, a soreness in her abdomen and spells of exhaustion. And since it doesn't go away, you, you, you set up an appointment with your child to go to the doctor. The doctor runs a bunch of tests, And then the doctor tells you that your daughter is ravished with tumors. Now, you have a choice to make. You can say to the doctor, well, thanks for the results, and walk out and do absolutely nothing about this problem. Or you can begin to listen to the doctor, to take in his wisdom, to schedule comprehensive treatment for your little girl so that you can give your child a fighting chance to find survival in life. We know the answer that all of us would choose. There might be that one sadistic person. Baton Rouge might not be full of our children, but they are full of God's children. Children that are called to be loved just like Jesus loves. Do we stand idly by without acting in love? Our text and this chapter holds in context that God declares the limitless and beautiful compassion that God has for all people. That no matter race or nationality or faith practice or sin or marital status or social faux pas or tally of mistakes or economic status or gender identity or sexual orientation or physical or mental ability or political stance or theological perspectives or stations in life, we are called to love all people. And the compassion of God is active and desires to bring all people into God's kingdom with radical hospitality, with radical connectedness, with a love for people that comes down from the core of our existence. But do we see people? And not just those who love us and bring value to us, 
Do we see people in the way that God sees people? In fact, could it be that what we need to hear from this text this morning is that God needs to cure us of our blindness to not see others in the way that God sees others? For some, we cannot see the harvest because of religious convictions or ethical constructs or political affiliation or past hurts or race or sexuality or gender. In fact, for me to stand up here and even to name these terms just makes us uncomfortable and maybe even infuriates. Rachel Held Evans goes on to write, we could not become like God, so God became like us. How God showed us how to heal instead of kill how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more, and we nailed God to a tree because we couldn't handle it. Except God got up and resurrected. So may we ask God to heal us of our blindness so that we can see the harvest, so that we can see our neighbors, our coworkers, our enemy, our friend, our spouse, our family, and our strangers. You remember this little jingle from probably 20-some years ago? The touch, the feel of cotton, the fabric of our lives. You remember that song? I was singing more in worship today than I've done in the 14 months I've been here. I just remember hearing that song as a kid, be like, I really want cotton now. So cotton has been a, a staple of, of who we are. Uh, anthropologists and archaeologists have found that Back even 7,000 years ago, the development of cotton for how we use it today. Growing up, my, my grandfather in Vance County, North Carolina, he, uh, my pawpaw grew up growing cotton, and it's not as easy as it looks. For about two months after planting, the flowers bud uh, called squares, and they, they appear on this cotton plant. Um, in another three weeks, the blossom will open. The petals change from this creamy white to yellow, then pink, and finally this dark red color. And after three days, they, they wither and fall, leaving this green pod, which is called a cotton bowl. And in a cotton grower, you have a specific time that you want to go and grab this crop. You don't you don't want to plant the seed too deep or too shallow because it won't yield a strong crop. You don't want to pick it too early because it might be too soft and not able to be useful. But then even just picking the cotton itself is difficult because covered on the cotton on is this, these thistles on the leaves, and it will cut your fingers like razors. And, and it's so difficult because you might do an entire row picking by hand, and you think you've done so much, but cotton weighs so very little, and your fingers are all cut up. My papa said that harvesting cotton is tough work. It's tough work. Typically, it's done in September, done in hot summer months. It's difficult work, but it's necessary for providing this crop that we as a world use so frequently. You see, the work of loving our neighbor and inviting people to follow Jesus is tough work. It's not short-term, easy solutions, but long-term, ongoing work. It's the day in, day out, never looking past the opportunity to love others and to tell them about Jesus. It's tough work of, of seeing what systems are suppressing neighbors because we know that God cares more than just about people's spirituality. God cares about people's physical circumstances. And when we look at the harvest, it seems so plentiful. 
It's so easy to understand why so many people leave that out of their spiritual journey with Jesus. But we are called not to just love God, but we are called to love neighbor as ourself. As the great mother Teresa put it, love cannot remain by itself. It has no meaning. Love has to be put into action and service. I don't want us to be passive. I want UBC to be active collaborators in God's beautiful and redemptive work in this world. Can we receive the love of God? And can we go forth into the harvest field?